the share it with a friend deal, even if that friend is yourself. Your McDonald's, your rules. Live your best morning with BOGO breakfast sandwiches only on the McDonald's app. Now buy one bacon, egg, and cheese McGriddles or sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and get a second one free. Valid for item of equal or lesser value. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one per day. Excludes one, two, three dollar menu. Visit McDonald's app for details. Download and registration required. This week on Happy, Sad, Confused, Alexandra Daddario on going from True Detective to Baywatch and Doug Lyman on directing and throwing out the rulebook for The Wall. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to my podcast. Welcome to Baywatch Week. Do-do-do-do. We didn't even practice that, by the way. <laughs> We're the Avengers of the Bay. That's right. Uh, Sammy joins me as always. Hi. Uh, hey. Hey. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, we've been we've been talking about Baywatch for a couple weeks because we, uh, if you listen to the podcast last week, we recounted our adventures in Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of course we had to have uh, a cast member on this week, and it is Alex Daddario, not Daddario, 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 another city kid like N- yourself, another city kid. Uh, she uh, is delightful, and it's been fun to talk to her the last month or so. Uh, we saw her at movie awards in Miami, and now had to have her on the podcast to talk about um, bringing the. This uh, bizarre, you know, like 80s, 90s kind of kitschy television show to life on the big screen thanks to the work of the great Dwayne The Rock Johnson. D The Rock J. And Zac Efron's She took the red eye to come see you. Just for me. Just for you. Yeah. Did you watch Billboard Music Awards last night? I didn't. I was in the car. Okay. That's okay. I forgive you. I'm sorry. Uh, She was was presenting alongside our- Did you? I did watch. I mean, I did a lot did of fast forwarding. Did you know who anyone was well, besides Josh Dumel and Alex Daddario? I did stop Daddario? on Josh Dumel. I, I, I was li- I was liberally fast forwarding. I'll put it that way. But I like to be in the know so I know what the kids Whenever are watching. Whenever your friends pop up, you'll pause it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's my way of keeping in touch with you. Dumel. <laughs> hey, Josh. Um, you look so good, buddy. <laughs> and Alex was with another one of our friends, Ansel Elgort. Oh, Ansel. Oh, I wonder if he was all right in Vegas without you. That's good right. luck, Charm. That's right. The last time I saw Ansel was in Vegas and he was winning actually he was winning big then he lost uh, a bunch yeah. um, so yes yeah, so she did take the red eye not just for me but because she is on one of these ginormous world tours if you know the name Alex Daddario, maybe can't can't associate with what you've seen her in you've probably seen her in perhaps the Percy Jackson films uh, True Detective season one the the amazing season of True Detective mm-hmm. of course um, and, uh, and and is now you know hitting it big with Baywatch a big role for her in this one and she's uh, really good at it and really you know she's like uh, yeah, a, a a New York City kid. So we always love those yeah. around here and uh, has a bright future ahead of her. And she, she's very thoughtful about sort of um, being uh, the odd artsy one in her family. Like her, she comes from like a family of lawyers and sort of being like the one that like wanted to pursue the arts and not necessarily being a great student and how weird that was for her growing up and, and kind of figuring out her way, her place in the universe. And now sure enough, of course, like everyone in her family is acting. Oh, uh, yeah. Her brother's, her brother's an actor a, yeah, too. Yeah, he's yeah. on uh, Shadow Hunters, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, and a little bit later in the podcast, we'll talk about this a little later. But if you're uh, a film uh, geek like myself, you know and love the work of Doug Lyman. Uh, of course, Swingers, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, and has a new film called The Wall, uh, starring Aaron Taylor Johnson and John Cena. And John Cena. You love your John Cena. <laughs> what is it? You, you and your wrestling, I, wrestler yeah, turned actors. It's really weird. Yeah. 
God. Yeah, I'm just waiting for Stone Cold Steve uh, Austin to make it big. Yeah, good luck. We may keep waiting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Doug is, I mean, as I alluded to, he's kind of a rule breaker of a director. He's a really um, an, an interesting guy, a guy who doesn't really subscribe to sort of the way films are, are always made. And that's partially why I want him on the podcast. He's a, he's a, a guy that always, even in a, in a big budget studio film, finds a way to make it his own. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But for now, uh, let's uh, enjoy some Baywatch talk uh, with Alex Daddario. Daddario. Do you get, did you get it? Dadar. No. No, Daddario. I'm JK. Here she is. Hey, Alex. Hey. Oh, look at you. I didn't even see you there. Oh, my gosh. What I've a, been here the whole time. Really? You did actually beat me to the podcast I studio did. today. I, I feel we actually, so guilty. I don't think we told you this, but we saw you running in I and heard. it was raining. It's and so upsetting. You were getting your umbrella all situated. <laughs> and Oh, I don't feel good. No, it's okay. And I, that's usually me. Well, not to mention, and you you took the red eye last night. I was watching the Billboard Music Awards. Yes, I was exhausted. Just like I was, I was on a plane yesterday, but getting home last night to watch the show, I feel exhausted. Yes, you actually were there. Yes, I was there. And somehow have crossed time and space. I know to be here. Well, the 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 sad thing is, is that the Billboard Music Awards is so cool, and so I got to watch the first hour of it. And then, you know, I had to get on a plane to come here, Red Eye. Right. Um, so I did miss Cher. And I did miss Celine Dion. That was a moment. I know. <laughs> but I feel like I should just start pretending that I actually was there, there since there's photo evidence that I was actually there. Yeah. But sadly, no. You got to hang with Ansel Elgort, one of our, our good buddies here. We've I did. Talked, talked a lot to Ansel over the yeah, years. Yeah, and I, I was saying, I, I feel like Ansel's like one of the coolest people I've ever met. He is. You know what I mean? Like he's just cool. He's so he's so wide-eyed. I feel like he's like, he makes me feel so old. He's just like an embryo. Yeah, nothing really seems to worry him. Yeah. Like he just seemed like happy and excited. He's just like a cool guy. Well, because nothing, the world hasn't beaten him down yet, like yeah, you and I. Yeah, that's right. He, he doesn't just know Just wait till he hits 30. <laughs> Things uh, will be terrible. Um, you're coming. Are you coming to the end of this press tour? You must be. I hope so for your sake. I think I'm sort of in the middle. I mean, it comes out later. Baywatch comes out later in Europe. Got it. So we have to go to once we do our New York yeah. sort of talk shows and all that kind of stuff. We go to Berlin and then London and then I go home. Okay. And I turn back into a pumpkin. <laughs> is this the is this the strangest press tour you've been on? Is this the like because I mean, obviously Percy, those are big press tours. Yeah. But this is different. big and by the nature of the content of it, I would think it's it's unique. Yeah, and it's it's definitely the the biggest press tour I've been on in some ways. And it's it's been a very positive experience. You know, I think the press tours I went on for Percy, I was a nervous wreck. I was very young. They were my first movies. And um, you think a lot about what you're supposed to say. And I still do that, but to a much lesser extent. I think, you know, right. I'm gro more grown up now and I feel um, uh, like a little bit like, okay, I, I can sort of be more of myself. Whereas, you right. know, I was, I, I was a bit overwhelming the first couple of times I did something like this. Um, but it's been really positive. I like the people that I work with on this on this film. Um, and it's it's just a fun movie to promote because I get to, you know, I was saying earlier, it's just it's a raunchy movie. So I get to say make dick jokes and right. say ridiculous things and have fun. And um, 
and I'm a little more loose with what I say. Is this your uh, sense of humor, the, uh, the the film and the press surrounding it? Is this yeah. your kind of vibe? Yeah, it is, uh, uh, quite a bit. You know, that's one of the reasons I did the movie. I read the script, and one of the first scenes in the movie is um, this scene where one of the characters um, gets a boner because he's looking at C.J. Parker, the Pamela Anderson character played by Kelly Rohrbach, and he gets a boner and... Um, and uh, he falls and gets his dick stuck in a beach chair. Right. And she comes over to right. try to help him get it out. And then Dwayne The Rock Johnson comes out to try to help him get it out too. And it's this, this, just this scene of them being like, "All right, buddy, we're gonna help you." And he's, I can't describe it as well it, as it's it, put on screen. But when it goes on and on, it's like it's not like a thirty second scene. It's like it no. goes to the point of where you're like, "This poor, poor man." Right. And that's why I loved the script. I was like, "This is exactly <laughs> my sense of humor." Yeah. A fifth. 15-minute dick stuck in a chair scene is my kind of thing. It's and the dream. Yeah. So I think that this movie is just – it's hilarious and it's ridiculous. And yeah. That's what I – that's sort of my sense of humor. So um, we've talked a few times in the last few weeks for this this silliness. I, I learned that you, you did grow up in New York City. I did. Um, you're an Upper East Sider as opposed to the mean streets of the Upper West Side like me. That's right. You were coddled and I just oh. – like I had to rough it. That's right. On Central Park West. That's right. Ugh. Oh, Central Park West. I was not – okay. Well, to be clear, I wasn't on Central Park West. It was okay. between CPW and okay, Columbus. Okay, okay. That's a whole different story. Yeah. I mean, right. come on. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, what was uh, what was your upbringing like? Give me a sense of what uh, – you're, you're one of three. Yes. I'm the oldest of three. My parents are lawyers. Uh, my parents sort of came from – my mother in particular came from very poor background, very much sort of education was sort of their way out of where they came from, sure. especially my mother. So they waited till they were a little bit older to have children so they could afford to send us to great schools and give us everything they wanted. They said, you know, we never wanted to be in a situation where you guys asked for something, a lesson or this or that and or braces or whatever the case may be, and we couldn't give it to you. Right. Um, so they waited till they had the money to sort of send us to private school and give us all these lessons and stuff like that. And um, so I really had – a ton of opportunity as a kid and acting was one of those things it was it was I went to acting lessons because it was something I wanted to do and acting camp when I was a kid you know like 10 years old and um and it sort of became this strange thing where education wasn't going to be you know college wasn't going to be the way that I became successful right it became apparent early on that I was just not a good student but it was so ingrained in me that that was what I was supposed to be doing that it was this very difficult sort of struggle of okay who am I um what are my goals and is acting really what I'm going to do and in my heart I believed it was but in my head I, I was like, this, yeah, this is, this not is, what this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not right. So that was sort of the, the strange thing about, you know, growing up on the Upper East Side of New York and going to private school where everyone goes to Ivy League schools and just not feeling like like that was my path. Right. I, I remember, I, you know, I went to a private school um, on the Upper East Side. I went to Dalton and I, I, I was like such like an underachiever and was not a good student. Like, I mean, I was an idiot. I just didn't, I wasn't good at, I just didn't attend classes. I wasn't doing anything like exciting when I wasn't right. going. I just was like literally like sitting in a corner reading a newspaper. It was right. very boring. Going to the movies. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I just remember like in my class, and I'm sure it was the same for you. It was like, not if you looked at everybody that went to school to college, like everybody went to an Ivy League 
school. And I right. was like, I went to Hobart William Smith, which was a nice little school. Right. But like it was it was just a different path. And you felt like you're in this like skewed world where like everybody is going to be like yeah. a senator or a doctor or whatever. <laughs> yes. And people were like, I got a lot. And even from some of my family, you know, I got a little bit of what are you doing? Like right. go to college, like, you know, a little bit of a little bit of shade from some people for not just, you know, and I, I tried. I really did try. I made a huge effort. And, I, you know, I, I, I spread myself a bit too thin, actually, because I was r- really following my heart, which was to act and going on these auditions, sometimes for ridiculous things. Right. And people were like, OK, you're going to what? fake another seizure in the mud with no bra on for a horror film that never sees the light of day, which is, you know, something I did ridiculous little parts in these movies. And, um, and then, um, I, I was going to college and then sometimes not going and, you know, sort of failed out of the first one, tried community college and was also bartending to make money. And it just, I was like, at a certain point, I just said, I'm going to have to devote myself 100% to one of these things. Right. Otherwise, I'm going to fail at all of them. And you're the oldest. You're the one that's supposed to be overachieving. That's you're the one right. supposed to have this shit knocked, like, locked down. Yeah, and I think <laughs> as the oldest, you know, you always sort of set the this this the stage for your younger siblings. Right. My brother's very close to me, so I think the two of us did. My sister's seven years younger than me, so you know, for us, my brother and myself, everything was very precious. Mm-hmm. And then by the time my sister came along, I think my parents just realized, okay. Life is tough. She's going to be all right. Right. And that's sort of, you know, and I hope that I sort of implement that in my parenting, although I probably won't because you do <laughs> tend to worry a lot more about the the old, the, the first sure. born, I think. So when did you stop worrying about yourself and when did you, your parents stop worrying about you? Was it was it with Percy or was it earlier? Um, Percy was a huge thing. That changed a lot. That's what moved me out to L.A. Right. And also, you know, then people saw me in movies and they saw me. They would see me on, you know, posters and in on TV. Yeah. And so that sort of validated like, oh, wow, she's actually. This is real. Right. <laughs> but it also validated it to myself. I mean, I needed that to know that I wasn't because there's always this seed of doubt like, yeah, you can is, say are you're, you really going to be an actor? Yeah, you can say you're an actor until like, okay, where, where's right. the proof? <laughs> right, and you know you get that you get insecure, and it's it's a very difficult profession. And a lot of people, even who are very talented, you know, you don't, you can't find the work that pays the bills and yeah. that kind of thing. And you know, I did struggle for a number of years in between jobs, and so it it was a huge deal for me as far as okay, I'm one hundred percent. I threw myself 100% into acting. I booked this job, and now I'm really going to do this for, you know, a long, long time where I'm going to 100% be an actor. Totally. Which is a scary, crazy thing, but it was incredibly exciting for me because that's really pretty much what I had always wanted to do. Um, We've had Logan on the podcast a couple times. We're slowly working our way through the the, um, Percy Jackson cast. That's what the secret, um, you know— Secret rationale for this podcast is just yes. to work our way. Pierce Brosnan, if you can put in a good word, you just sure. just, just let me know yes. like, what I can do. Um, 
So, I mean, that one obviously had such a, like a pedigree. So the, the books and Chris Columbus and it was like, it's going to be the next Harry Potter. It's, this is it. Um, did you, I mean, like, and I'm sure there were different stages of that through those two films of like, this is going to be the thing that's, that I'm going to be consumed with the next 10 years, or maybe it's not, or maybe it is. Or I mean, was there kind of a vacillation in terms of like how big a deal it was going to be in your life? I think for me, coming from, I was doing... The things I was doing in New York were so – no one knew who – I had right. no career. <laughs> right. So for me, Percy Jackson – you might as well have put me in Harry Potter. Right. For me, in my world, it was so big that it could have completely failed and still would have been sure. huge for me. So there was no sense of, oh, I'm going to be you know Emma Watson in Harry Potter. That It was just like, wow, I'm actually in a movie that – and I had no sense of Hollywood or how things worked or what expectations were or um, I just sort of was going with the, you know, for the first couple of weeks I was on set, I was convinced that I was going to be fired right. and that they'd made a terrible. It was this very surreal experience, extremely life changing. And, you know, I couldn't really think beyond that. Um, as far as what was going to happen. And then once the first movie came out, it did well. You know, I, I did hope that there'd be a second, and it took a while for there to be a second. So right. by the time they were like, okay, we're making another movie, I was shocked, <laughs> and but excited. Sure. But it, it, it took longer than I thought. I think it's a good sign. I've had so many actors here <clears throat> that are like literally the top of the game. I had Michael Fassbender in here like mm. last week, and he still talks about like he always thinks <clears throat> he's going to be fired. Like he doesn't right. know... His way, like he, he, he just, you can be literally the world's most celebrated actor. He's arguably is in the top five right now. Well, I remember we had a press conference for Percy Jackson and Pierce Brosnan was was there, and they asked him some question. I forget what the question was, but his answer was basically like, you know, I'm just happy to be working, and you know, I, yeah. I always just want to be working. And I'm like, you're Pierce Brosnan, and you you're still worry James Bond, about dude. <laughs> doesn't about get more secure than that. <laughs> not working, yeah. And that's the thing. You just, as an actor, you just always want to be working and working with cool people, and you want to to do great things and you want to tell stories and you want to, you know, make people laugh or make people feel things. And when you're not doing that, you're sitting around waiting for your next chance to be creative. Yeah. And you have to be self-motivated to find that in your regular life. Otherwise, you're living off of just your jobs. And that can be a very unhealthy thing where you're just fed by your work. And I definitely am guilty of having that problem um, on and off and something I have to work on because so, it's it's true, I think, of everybody. So so in between the jobs now, like what, what's your mechanism for like finding some self-worth and validation that doesn't come from like It's not even self-worth and validation. It used to be self. Now it's more just you just get you just get bored yeah. and get in your own head um, a bit, yeah. And yeah, I think I think um, yoga has been a huge thing, weirdly enough. So it's just something else to focus on. You know, you, you really work on your yoga practice. I have good friends. You know, when I first moved to LA, I had no friends really, so yeah. I had no one to distract me. Now I have some good friends, and and I do a lot of reading. Um, and I take um, improv classes, like ground links. Do you, you still do? Yes, yes. Is, I, is that is that odd? Like when obviously you've got a pretty good career going and like. You, you know, I've thought about that, but no one 
I mean, the class I've only taken. Well, I've tried to take. I keep having. Sometimes I'll get job a job this, yeah. and then leave the class. But no one's ever, you know. Sometimes towards the end of class, when we all get to know each other better, people will be like, "Oh, I really liked you in this," or "Congrats on Baywatch," or sure. whatever it is. But it's just a community of actors. No one's like giving me any special treatment or. They're not slipping the True Detective DVD to you silently across the like. No, before. not not yet. No, <laughs> it's a really I I love Groundlings, and a lot of the people who go to Groundlings are working actors and doing sure. various things. So it's not, it's it doesn't feel weird to be there. So was when you, you know, for people like me, we chart the the course of the career and like we see like sort of like what the blips are and what the progressions are. And it seems like True Detective is kind of a, a game changer. Yeah. Is it fair to say? <laughs> did, it, did it feel that way for you? Like once that arc happened and that season happened and it changed, please, even for yeah. Woody and Matthew, it changed their careers and they've been in the game for a while. Yeah. True Detective was completely shocking. That blew me away because that was a role where I really fought for the role. And it wasn't that role. It was a different role. Um, and they thought I was too old for it. And then they, I kept auditioning and I really fought for it. And, um, and they ended up giving me this other role, sight unseen. And they said, but you have to be naked. And I was like, fine. I was like, I want to work with these people so badly. And I was at a point in my career was I, I was having difficulty getting into rooms even to audition for certain things. Mm-hmm. I remember they did a Wonder Woman pilot. And I remember I couldn't get into audition for the Wonder Woman pilot. And I just remember thinking that was so ridiculous that I was like, I have to do something different because I'm not being taken seriously. Right. I'm not, I need to do something that I want to work with Carrie Fukunaga. I want to work with Woody Harrelson, Matthew McConaughey, because it'll just be on my resume. Yeah. I'll just put it on there and people will see, oh, look, she works with Carrie Fukunaga. And then I figured in auditions, they'd be like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Like, how was that? Yeah, it diversifies the, yeah, the, 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 the resume a bit. Right, exactly. Um, and um, not that the things I had done before that were bad. It just, for some reason, I just needed to do something completely different. Right. Um, and um, when it came out, um, my managers the next day said that the phone was ringing off the hook, like off the hook. And all of a sudden I had all these meetings with all these big producers and and I booked San Andreas, I think, like a week or two later. Wow. So it it was completely shocking that it made as big of a difference as it as it did. It it really completely changed my career. Yeah. Um and I think that's incredibly exciting. And it's also a testament to how great a director Kerry Fukunaga is that having a role like that in in something that he directed and um, and just being in something so great and being directed so well, you know, I yeah. think really helped. Well, what are the unanticipated negative consequences of something like that were there? Because, I mean, obviously it, it did kind of put you in a whole new light in terms of like more adult roles coming your way, et cetera. Yeah. And they're seeing you in a different way. I honestly can't think of anything really? negative. I mean, I I really can't. It was it was it was look, it was scary to go and get completely naked. Sure. I'm I'm not I've never been I it's strange that to me and sort of amazing that I now play all these sort of sexy roles and I'm known for being very like sexy because I in my real life I never really felt that way. I'm actually I especially as a young person I was pretty uncomfortable with my sexuality. Um so that's a little bit just it was a surprise to me, but it was a completely positive thing. And if anything, people were very complimentary. <laughs> I mean, people, no one was saying anything mean. Right. They were just like, wow, 
I love your boobs. I'd love to put them in my face. Like, okay, that's not a mean thing to say. Um, and so it was sort of, it was sort of, it was fine. This is Happy Sad Confused. We'll be right back after this. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. So San Andreas came almost immediately after, you were saying? Yes. So that's where the, the love yes. affair with Dwayne The Rock Johnson yes. began. Yes. Who you're just going to be making films with. Till, it's like Spencer, Tracy. and That's right. Yeah, yeah this is like a new the team. The Rock and Alex Dario. <laughs> so wait, are you, are, is, that, is that an actual franchise? Are you going to do, do another one? Is the San Andreas fault going to break open again? What's going to happen? I think that's the goal. I what? think that's the goal. I know that they're um, – I, it's public knowledge that they're writing another one. Right. Um, but, you know, there's the whole process of getting it into production, getting it approved, sure. Dwayne's schedule. But I think that it's a big priority for them based on it, it did very well um, overseas right. and um, in China. And I think that it would be a very cool movie to go and be part of. I have fun making those kinds of movies. I'm sure you can fit it in like a – even the president has, has to take a vacation once in a while. Instead of going to Kennebunkport, he can make right. a San Andreas sequel. Instead of playing golf, yeah. he can go and yeah. like on his weekends shoot San Andreas. We can shoot it over the course of a year over weekends. It's true. Or you could just do it like in a green screen in the Rose Garden. Right. Yeah. There will be secret service all around as we shoot. <laughs> I'll be, you know, I'll have a cabinet position. And now you get to get to know Tom, Tom Hanks too, apparently. This is so exciting. Hollywood taking over the White House. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned uh, Wonder Woman. You, your name was was in the uh, the running for Jessica Jones, I remember. That's right, yes. Um, have you have you done that kind of – I mean superheroes have taken over Hollywood, so invariably it comes up often in my conversations with actors and directors. Um, has that kind of a role come your way a lot? Have you been in a number of these kind of superhero audition kind of things? Sure. I mean I, I do now get to audition for – You get in the room now. Pretty That's much exciting. everything. Yeah, which is great. Not everything, but but most big things and um, – um, Sometimes they'll already have someone in mind, so the audition is sort of just right. a moot point. But but um, but I like auditioning a great deal because it's an opportunity to go and prove yourself. And even if you don't get the role, I think that if you can go do a good job, then there are people that will see that and think of you for other things. Sure. And so I find auditioning to be a very important tool. And it's interesting because the bigger you get and the more you work, your agents will be like, no, 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 no. You don't, you're not auditioning Alex for that. We, we don't want to. Yeah. Can, we can try to get you that role without an audition. Right. And I find that to be sort of dangerous because I actually believe very much in auditioning. Do you want to um, prove it to yourself as much as them or you're just like it feels like – um, I think it's this strange. I think I have this strange combination of insecurity and confidence. Right. So I'm very confident that if I prepare properly and I get in the room, I can kick butt in an audition and really like be like, look at how great I am. 
which you have to have that kind of ridiculous confidence going in because it's such a difficult yeah. sort of thing, the audition process. So it's this mentality. And athletes, I think, have this too, which is it's it, you have to sort of – you have to believe that you're going to hit the ball. Otherwise, you're not going to hit it. Right. Um, you don't want to walk into the room and be like, you guys probably aren't going to want me for this, but I'll read the right. lines anyway. I mean, right. if which you really want me to, I'm here anyway. Yeah, and it's something I did for a long time, which I'd go and I'd be like, I'm not going to get this role, and I'm a shitty actress, and this is terrible, and no one likes me. And then you go in and you're like, huh. And <laughs> they can tell, and you're not into the audition. And so I go in with this. So I, I more so want to prove to other people. I have this sort of endless desire to prove to other people that I am yeah. can do it. Um, whether or not I get the role, which, you know, more times than not, you don't. Sure. But um, so, things lead to other places. And then sometimes you go in and you have a bad audition and you're like, well, I messed that up. Right. And then you learn how to deal with that and let that go. Is your family still back here in New York or do you have? My mother is. Um, mm. And my brother is an actor as well. And he's actually – he's between New York and Toronto where he shoots his show, Shadow Hunters. Right. And my sister's back here and she just quit her job to become an actress. There you go. So it's in we're the all actors. Um, and my dad's out in California. I'm trying to get everyone to come out to California. Right. Now, wait, your, your dad ran here in New York the anti-terrorism – He was unit, the deputy, right? deputy chief of counterterrorism. Now, now – should I worry that you moved out to L.A. around the time he was doing that? Do you know something? Should I move no, out to L.A.? No. Are we, we going to be okay? I moved out to L.A. way before he got that job. Okay, he was actually working in Russia when I moved out to L.A. And then he came back from Russia. And, you know, I'm sure he knows all kinds of things he's never told me. Um, and he had that job. And, um, and I mean, he, he you know, he doesn't tell – it's not the you kind can't of job tell that. Yeah, people yeah, exactly. anything, so what really. Did you do today? But he did, like, we did get to, my best friend got engaged and her um, fiancé said, or was about to get engaged. Her fiancé said, I want to propose, basically, right. to, to my best friend. And um, would you help me go? I want to propose in Times Square. So my father ran security for Times Square on New Year's Eve. So basically was able to get us in directly underneath where the ball dropped at, you know, 1130. And then midnight came around and he got down on one knee and proposed. So so okay, as far perks. as there my father's go. job goes, that's, that was, that was what I got out of it. <laughs> I thought that that was pretty okay. cool. That's pretty good. Yes. Um, so what are you going to do when your downtime coming up? Uh, what's what's on the agenda besides yoga and friends for you? Do you have another job coming up soon or do you get a little break I after this? I don't. And I really would like to get back to work as usual. Um, don't leave her alone with her thoughts. That's right. It's, it's <laughs> going to be bad. No, I, 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 I would like to go get get a job and find the right thing. Yeah. You know, I don't want to just work for the sake of working. I would like to find something that, you know, seems interesting and different. Um and I just bought a house, what? which is crazy. What? It's actually still in escrow, so I don't even know if I should talk you about probably it. Probably shouldn't until what? Knock on wood. <laughs> but um, you're a full functioning adult. I yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> I'm like, how did I get here? I'm gonna have a house. Like, you what's got, next? A baby? Who knows? Um, so I I do feel old. I feel old. I feel mature. Mat that's a better way to put it. I feel it. like a real adult. Yeah, I mean, we as you sat down, we were discussing how many times you were allowed to say the word penis on this podcast, and yes. here we we had a very like look. I haven't said coherent, the word penis once. You want to get it out of your system a few penis. times? Penis, 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 penis. 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 penis.
uh, everybody should check out Baywatch. If you like penises. There, there is a penis in the film. There's several. Are there several? Oh, yeah, there are, two, there are at least well, two I can think of. Well, there's a naked one, and then there's, there's some— a dead penis. There's some erect penises. Yep. Yes, yep. but they're clothed. Clo- they're covered. Right. Um, but I think that that's great. That's progress. That's what we you call know, progress. You don't get to see a lot of penises in movies. You get to see a lot of boobs, right. nipples, right. occasionally a vagina. Yeah. But not a lot of penises. Very few penises in, in the new Cars 3. Yeah. You're not going to get any penises in that no, one. No, it makes me sad. Yeah. Oh. Don't be sad. Baywatch well, you, is out yeah, there. Yeah, you don't have to be sad because now you can get your fill of penises <laughs> in Baywatch. I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, <laughs> Alex, get some rest. Get another Thank job you. because, again, we don't want you just – I don't want you upset. I just want you happy. Oh, no. I won't be upset. I'll always be happy. Okay, good. Yes. Good. Uh, I'll see you on the next one. And uh, everybody, go enjoy Baywatch for um, uh, Join the Rock Johnson fun, Zac Efron fun, uh, Alex Daddario. Not Daddario, I've discovered. It's If you if you meet Alex. It is, did, it is technically Daddario. What? I think actually my brother pronounces it differently than me. I don't know. I've been saying Alexander Daddario my whole life, so that's just how I pronounce it. But I think I've been pronouncing my own last name wrong. Well, that's how that, – Kate, Kate Mara Kate Mara yes. goes Kate Mara and Rooney, Rooney goes Rooney Mara. Oh, good. So it's not just me. It's, so you've got another fucking weird family just like the Mara Maras. Great. Perfect. <laughs> You yeah, guys should we sort ne- this out. We never talk about convened this. and figured this out. Maybe over the next Thanksgiving, this is something to talk about, yes, and just maybe for future podcasts, so right. you don't like make the host really but confused. The problem will be like I'll be like, you guys should say it to Dario, right? And then they'll be like, no, say it to Dario, and we'll all be we'll all be too stubborn, and we won't want. So but we're you're just you're the super famous one. You get you get this is the clout oh, of celebrity. Okay, you all should right. throw down that. All right. <laughs> and lots Super of relationships. Famous. Soup's famous. <laughs> uh, it's good to see you, Alex, as always. Yes. Thank you so much. Penis, penis, penis. Penis, penis. That was Alex D'Addario starring in Baywatch. Check it out this week. You won't be able to miss miss it. It's the action comedy of the summer, at least until the next big action comedy comes. Yeah, for <laughs> it's, the next couple It's weeks. summer. There's, there are huge yeah. movies every week. Um, there's another movie that's not necessarily huge, but it, it is intense, and it's a really quality thriller. It's called The Wall. It's out in theaters right now, and it comes from uh, the amazing mind that is uh, Doug Liman's. Doug Liman is a filmmaker I've, I've tracked throughout his career. He uh, His first big film, his first like real film was Swingers. Um, uh, and then he went on to make Go, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Edge of Tomorrow, Jumper. He, he's kind of had this very eclectic, interesting career and and always has – oh, and of course, uh, The Born Identity. Well, I was going to say – Yeah, that little what about, movie. Yeah. Um, this is what happens when you talk without looking at notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's – you know, action directors, thriller directors, Hollywood kind of quote-unquote Hollywood film directors kind of – there's a sameness to them. And he really um, – just uh, rebels against that and is he is, breaks the mold? He does. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. And um, and he, and I, I love talking to him. And I've talked to him for many years. He was in my my uh, a historic book that sold fifteen copies a, a decade ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I've talked to him for for many years. And I've always appreciated his frankness. Um, and uh, he's a he's just a good.
good interview. And there's a lot of good stuff in this one, including if you're a fan of Edge of Tomorrow, stay tuned for some uh, cool uh, details on his upcoming uh, planned sequel to the Ooh. film. Yeah, so I'm really psyched about that because that was such a great film with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, of course. Yeah. Uh, and he's also going to probably be directing, if all goes according to plan, this movie called Justice League Dark, which is a, uh, a big DC uh, movie. So a lot, of, a lot of news in this one and also just sort of interesting backstory on the Bourne identity, et cetera. Um, oh, just, I want to hear that. There's some, there's some good stuff in this one. So I'm going to listen to this one. Oh, <laughs> yeah. gee, thanks, yeah, yeah, Sammy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Not yeah. just listen to the intro with you? No, I always fast forward the intro. Don't worry. <laughs> you don't that. listen to yourself? No. Yeah, I do that too. It's I, I skip awful. By it. I listen, listen to the interview. So shrill. I'm sorry. I like to. I like to. Well, because I, I also have to like you know help write the summary too. So I like to. So you have to. I have to endure my horrible yeah. voice. It's like the self. It's like <laughs> self immolation. You punish yourself. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Enjoy this conversation with Doug Lyman. As I said, he's a unique one. And uh, enjoy his new film, The Wall. It's a it's a it's a, a taut thriller. Uh, very uh, with two of our faves. Two of our faves. Um, one of your ultimate faves, John Cena mm-hmm. and Aaron Taylor Johnson, um, in kind of this like sniper situation in Iraq, and uh, getting some really good reviews for it. So check it out, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy this chat. We're uh, we're off and running with Mr. Doug Lyman, uh, director of The Wall. It's good to see you, Doug. Hi, nice to see you. Too. Thanks for coming in. Um, so, congratulations on the new film. I mean, I'm such a fan of all your work, and it's it's always exciting to see sort of what you have in store for the audience because you're nothing if not an unpredictable filmmaker, and I mean that in, in the best possible way in terms of genre, in terms of the choices and risks you take, uh, and The Wall is certainly, um, you know, I don't know if, if there were a Hollywood director handbook is not maybe the the film that they say you do after Edge of Tomorrow, after you do $100 million movies. Yeah. Um, can you give me a sense of sort of like, are the reasons of doing something like this the same as doing the, you know, the Mr. and Mrs. Smiths and the, and the Edge of Tomorrows of the world? Uh, yeah, I mean, my criteria, like there's no like, you know, career management, you know, there's no 10-year career plan or, or right. any of that. There's just... What movie do I want to make? What story do I want to tell? Uh, and it's not a lot of math to it. I usually find myself if I'm if I'm telling the story to my friends at the at a you know dinner party, and I'm like, this, if I just keep finding myself talking about the movie, that means you're interested enough. That means I maybe instead of telling the story, you know, one person at a time or five people at a time, I want to put it into a movie so I can you know, yeah, just not for have convenience. to keep retelling exactly. it. Uh, so it, it really. Uh, you know, I think there's other directors out there, you know, like the Michael Bays who, who just do nothing but giant movies. And then they come along and they make like a small movie and you're like, okay, that, that's a really conscious decision. Right. But, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any kind of pattern within my career. It's more like, like a Rorschach thing. You know, it's just, some are big, some are smaller, you know, they, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason other than their stories I want to tell. And so what do the people that work around you, you know, representation and that kind of thing, by now do they, like, how do they know what to send you um, because it is kind of scattershot in the best possible way? Uh, I mean, do, you, do you tell them, like, you know, I'm feeling like a particular genre or anything, or do you just say sort of t- send me what's good? Um, I usually just say send me what's good. I mean, the case of The Wall, I, I it was a script I was being sent to look at the writer for another project. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to, you, you read scripts, else. Yeah, it's a writing yeah. sample. And, and they said, you should read the script. It's Amazon had this contest. This guy's in China. He's an American, but he's living in China teaching English. He wrote this script. He sent it in. It won the contest. It's now on the blacklist. People love this script. 
So I was like, okay, I'll read the wall because maybe I'll want to work with this writer. Right. And then I just couldn't put the script down because sometimes I only read like 20 pages and I'm like, okay, this guy knows how to write and right. uh, and I'm busy. And so I, I, that's enough for me to say, okay, I'll take a meeting. Uh, and then I pretend like I read the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> that and, ending, amazing. Uh, yeah, and hopefully they don't ask too many specific questions. <laughs> Got to go to the bathroom when you. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm pretty used to sort of jumping into situations where I'm a little bit, you know, <laughs> you know, having to catch up and figure think, it out. Think yeah. on my feet. Yep. And, yep. and uh, so uh, I just, you know, the, it was such a page turner. It was such a, you know, it's like a, in the best possible way of a thriller. Just could not put it down. And I also I. I cared so much about the characters, you know, who are in the movie are played by John Cena and Aaron Taylor Johnson. But, yep. you know, when you're reading a script, they're just characters on a page. And, uh, you know, one of the issues I tend to have uh, in a lot of the screenplays I'm sent is, you know, you're not rooting for the characters. And with Dwayne Worrell's script of The Wall, I found myself immediately rooting for these guys. Like on page two, I was rooting for them and I never stopped rooting for them. And, and I couldn't put it down. And I was like, and they're like, you know, what do you think of this writer? And I was like, well, what about the script? Uh, and that was a situation where they're like, I was like, who's directing the wall? And I expected them to say like, oh, it's, you know, David Ayer's directing it sure. or, you know, Will Smith's directing it. Who knows? You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they were like, uh, no one's directing it right now. And they're like, why? Would you be interested? And they just, you know, no one. No one even thought. That no one would even be thought. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were like, it's because. Not because of the scale of it, but because, you know, it's a war movie. It's 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 just not like any other movie I've made. Uh, and so, you know, because I'm I very much look for humor in every situation. And you uh, found the one situation where there's very little it's humor. Really to be hard found. to find humor <laughs> when, when you know, when you're pinned down by an Iraqi sniper and, and you're wounded and your right. partner's near death, uh, it gets a little trickier to find the humor. It also must just like uh, excite you from a filmmaking standpoint in terms of, um, you know, being a test of your skills and how to – I mean obviously the script is, is compelling as you say. You kind of fall uh, – you know, you relate to these characters. You put yourself in these situations. Um, but in terms of how to how to capture the action and make it dynamic and make it feel riveting and, and tense for 90-plus minutes, did it, did it feel like a, a unique challenge in that way and is that part of the, the fun for you? I mean, I only tackle films that are challenges to me. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise said to me, if you're, if you're not afraid when you go to work, it's probably time to change professions. Right. Uh, you know, speaking about, you know, making movies. And uh, for sure, The Wall was, was terrifying as, a, as an endeavor because uh, you know, I have a really short attention span. And I deal with that in my movies by having lots of characters and lots of situations and quick cutting and, and you know, you never have to stay in any one situation too long. And in the case of The Wall, where you have two American soldiers pinned down, you know, in one spot, I'm taking away all of these sort of little distractions yeah. that I've used in my other movies. But it's still me. I still have the same short attention span. So I'm like, how do I make a movie that I would enjoy? That, that I would be riveted by and and not, you know, I don't believe in the kind of, you know, challenge for challenge sake because the audiences don't care about that. Like this, not, They're not grading you on a curve. They're not saying. Exactly. Yeah, they, they don't grade you on a curve. Like the movies all cost the same amount of money to go. They right. all take the same amount of time. They, you know, it's you're choosing to go see a movie because you want to be entertained and, yep. and have, be thought provoked and uh, – 
you know, that's the only thing the audience cares about. So I really, uh, in fact, the original script was very much more focused just on Aaron Taylor Johnson's one character. And, mm -hmm. and I said, you know, I could see a filmmaker being like, oh, look, I'm going to make a one actor movie. And I was like, audiences, like, it's so masturbatory. Like, you know, the audiences really care about that. Oh, look, he made a movie with one arm tied behind his back. Right. It's like, no, they want both. They want both my arms out there. They want me firing on all cylinders. They want me using every resource I have to make the most exciting, entertaining film I could make. So the first thing I did uh, when I started working on The Wall was to really augment uh, the second uh, soldier, who's now played by John, John Cena. Yeah. And then I cast, you know, a giant star um, with, with huge movie star presence. You know, and it's John Cena's first time in a dramatic role. And yeah. it, it clearly won't be his last time. And so... Because uh, that sort of buddy camaraderie uh, was so important to me uh, because it's so true to the experience of soldiers in the field um, because I like humor in my movies and, and you know, it's going to be the only my only shot at finding humor in the wall is going to be while uh, through that camaraderie in the, first the camaraderie minutes, between yeah. uh, John and, and Aaron. Yeah. Um, and because I didn't want this in any way, I kind of wanted to kill any chance of it being considered one of those the gimmicky kind of gimmicky vanity movies plays, yeah. yeah vanity thing where you're like oh look what doug accomplished with one actor i was like was not interested in that at all so i wanted to sort of take that off the table right from the beginning and be like no this the wall has to compete on a level playing field with every other movie out there totally um since we have some time if you'll uh indulge me let's go back a, a little ways we've talked a bunch of times over the years and i know you're a born and bred new yorker like myself yeah. um so what was uh, what was your childhood movie theater? What was what was your family uh, as passionate about films as you were growing up? Uh, you know, I did not grow up in a film family. My father uh, was a lawyer. My my mom is an artist. Right. Uh, my grandmother was an artist. Uh, so there were there were some artists in the family, but uh, you know, my early memories were uh, a film where my brother taking me to Woody Allen double features. Nice. Uh, and uh, you know the I I don't. You know, my my filmography of, you know, kind of the films I was raised on, you know, I just I'm not going to sound as impressive as, say, Quentin Tarantino, because like the films that influenced me growing up were, you know, Superman, uh, Spielberg films, Lucas films, yeah. you know, just these the big screen uh, and, and, and big entertainment and. I was like, that's what I want to make. Yeah. You weren't diving into a obscure Asian cinema at a four uh, 14 years old. You were. No. And were... I had comic book characters yeah. painted on the walls of my room. <laughs> I actually had a, a movie. You know, I've been making movies since I was eight. Right. So I actually had a had a movie screen that my mom painted on the wall of, of my room when I was, uh, you know, what, second grade, third grade. Um, and uh, and it was held up by car cartoon characters. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I was, you know, and I never, from that point on, you know, from, I guess about the time I was eight onward, I always had a movie screen in my bedroom. Right. Is there, what movie do you think you've seen more than any other in your lifetime dating back to childhood? Is there one that you just saw it on a loop as much as you could as a kid? And I mean, again, to? this is why, like, I'm, you know, I'm going to be your, your least impressive, no, least, least auteurish, <laughs> that's okay. directorial, You're relatable. uh, 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 <laughs> 
director you're Revenge gonna interview. Revenge of the nerds. Yeah, uh, I, you know, that might even be an improvement. Uh, I'd say Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hey, come on, Cameron Crowe, Amy Heckerling, that's pretty good. It's just, it's not Alfred Alfred Hitchcock's <laughs> notorious. <laughs> you know, it's it's. There was time for that later. Uh, you know, it's a teenage sex comedy, and, I'm t- <laughs> and, and honestly, is you know, I, I I knew that movie by heart. Yeah. Well, that, that's the one genre you haven't gone into, the teenage sex comedy. Anything that is in true. development? Uh, no, but, you know, <laughs> it's not because not I wouldn't do it. And I, I created a, a TV series called The O.C., and, and sure. that, that actually had a fair amount of sex in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was actually, it was actually pretty awkward for me um, as a director, you know, <laughs> so to direct all these, you know, teenagers, you know, to, to do these sexual acts. And it was like... It's very, very uncomfortable. I can imagine. Um, so I mean, you referenced it. Yeah, for those that don't know, your, your dad was a very no, you know, notable attorney, a yeah. big part of the Iran-Contra uh, hearings. How old were you when Iran-Contra was going on? Um, I was in college. I was about 20 um, when Iran-Contra was happening. So what, what was your perspective on it? Were you, I mean, just give me a sense. Of I mean, I was, you know, my, so my father was the chief counsel to the Senate and he was, uh, it was the first and last time ever in this country's history where both the Republicans and the Democrats had the same chief counsel. Uh, th- that's how well they got along in, in that particular Senate. Wow. Um, that, the, you know, it's just, it's Im- unimaginable Yeah, you're talking today. about another world, science fiction, basically, um, you're talking about right But it was right sort of yeah. uncommon back then, too. But my dad was that kind of person who brought people together. Yeah. Um, and he ran the investigation into the Iran-Contra affair, which is when uh, Reagan uh, created a secret CIA. I mean, the, the reality of Iran-Contra is, you know, it sounds like a movie plot, um, but he, he created a, a second CIA that was secretly funded by offshore money, um, by arms sales to Iran, which was our enemy. I mean, yeah. uh, and, I mean they had had our hostages not that long before. Um, and with this offshore money and this secret CIA, he could do whatever he wanted, and he was doing things with it that were prohibited um, by U.S. law, so the Congress had had forbidden um, any support of the rebels in uh, Nicaragua, which was communist-controlled at the time. And so he used his secret CIA, which was run by a guy named Oliver North, to uh, to fight this war anyhow. Um, and then the whole thing went tits up uh, when when a, a plane load of guns crashed um, into Nicaragua. Um, and my father led the investigation into that. So I, I really had a a front row seat on on how how things really work in our government, um, the humor of, of many of the situations, uh, and also the kind of mechanics of what really happens in the CIA. Uh, and ultimately, I, I brought that level of, of detail when I made the, the board identity. Sure. Well, was, in fact, the born identity is a retelling of Iran Contra. I was going to say. So, was there ever a, a thought or a script that you considered developing that was more directly, like an overtly, a telling of that time period? Uh, well, I mean, born identity very much. Chris Cooper is playing Oliver North and sure. Julie Stiles as Fawn Hall. It's I buried it a little too much, <laughs> but it is there. Um, and there's there's a lot of not the sequels because they're just kind of a chase. But the the original film, if you go back to it, it's it's loaded with politics, but yeah. but not in. Uh, in the same way, there's politics in the wall, but it, it's there. It's in service of story. Right. It's not in service of me having a particular agenda. Like I just think some showing of these, off your intelligence. Some of these political yeah. stories are interesting, and and they create great characters in in compromising situations, and that makes for for good storytelling, good movies. Uh, 
So, uh, and then I actually uh, am making a film right now that American comes Made, out right? yeah. yeah in September, American Made with Tom Cruise, which where he plays a pilot flying for the CIA, pl- flying for Ronald Reagan, um, flying guns to these rebels in Nicaragua. Oh wow! So, I'm actually I'm making kind of the it's the start of Iran Contra, right? Um, and it's the Contra part of Iran Contra, but. Huh. Um, in fact, uh, that was a script that was, uh, again, a spec script that was sent to me by, uh, written by Gary Spinelli. And, um, it's, I love the story. And then I got to like the last 10 pages of the script and suddenly Oliver North shows up in the script. And I'm like, I didn't even realize, even having lived through Iran-Contra, I didn't realize the story I was following right. was the precursor to Iran-Contra until the last. 10 minutes of, of the script. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. This is Iran Contra. <laughs> I just was seeing it from the point of view of, of a pilot flying for the CIA. Totally. It's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned Bourne, which which was a, obviously a huge moment for, for you and for the genre, the action genre uh, and the spy genre, whatever you want to call it. Was, was it a bigger leap for you, do you feel, as a, as a filmmaker going from um, swingers to go or from go to Bourne? Uh Clearly, the bigger leap is from Go to Born. Yeah, uh, just in terms of studio and the scale. And scale I mean, Go and, was an yeah. independent movie again. It was a small movie, uh, and uh, you know, Go is sort of it was an independent movie, but it already Sony was releasing it. Right. Know, they they bought the film while we were it, while we were in prep, and it the, it lost its financing, and Sony came in and rescued the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was like a three million dollar movie, and. Uh, but I still I sort of cut my teeth in terms of fighting back on the studio because they were trying to impose all sorts of ideas on the movie that I just didn't agree with. And and I also had a very rebellious editor who they would call him up behind my back to try to get him to make changes to the movie. Was he on your side? And he would – he's sort of on no one's side. He's a brilliant <laughs> editor. He's a brilliant, brilliant editor. He's a brilliant person, Steve Marioni. But – he would actually record, these people would call him, and unbeknownst to them, he would record them as they would be like, don't tell Doug, but would you make these changes? And then when we would screen the movie, you know, because then we'd work on the movie, and a few weeks later we'd screen it for our executives at Sony again in a screening room in the Sony lot. And at the end of the movie where the credits come up and normally there'd be music, it would suddenly be a montage of all these audio clips of all these executives (laughs) stabbing me in the back. Uh, and that didn't, they, they did it again. Like it, it happened more than once. They didn't you get think the message. They they they're, they're, <laughs> they're studio executives. What do you um, expect? But I really sort of cut my teeth in terms of, especially you're making a film like Go, that's such a rebellious movie. You're right. like, of course you're not going to Can't roll to over to the studio. studio yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and I sort of brought uh, some of that uh, spirit with me when I went to make The Born Identity, which was, you know, I went from $3 million to, you know, 50 some odd million dollar budget. Yeah. Um, and the first person that gets hired, you know, on a studio film, because it's, you know, I, I put the Born Identity together myself. Right. I, I didn't have a producer. I was the producer. I got the rights to the book from Robert Ludlum myself. Right. I hired myself as director and I <laughs> sold the project to Universal. And I hired uh, Blake Heron to write the first draft. I hired Tony Gilroy to write the second draft. I convinced Matt Damon to be in the movie. There's no, um, there's no producers. So once the film was greenlit, they're like, okay, we need to, you need some people to help you make the movie. And the first person they hired was what's called a line producer. Yep. That person's in charge of the budget. And I've got a budget that's now 20 times larger than the movie I just made. 
And the first thing this line producer is doing is telling me all the things we can't afford to do. And I kept saying, like, I don't understand. I did that on Swingers. I made that movie for $200,000. We have $50 million. What do you mean we can't afford to do that? He's like, Swingers look like shit. He's like, let me tell you how we did it on Under Siege 2. <laughs> I'm, I'm seriously not exaggerating. And I'm like... Dark territory? Yeah, let's see how they did it on that I one. was like... The gold standard. He's like, that's how you make a movie. I'm like, well, you know, and again, I'm, I'm not... It's easier for me to be a little more confident about myself now, but you got to imagine me as, as a... 30-year-old filmmaker in the studio system, like, yeah, you know, with all these people who have made 20 movies and know what they're doing. This is how we make an action movie. And this is how you do it. Yeah. You know, I, I sound more confident now, but I was like, <laughs> you know, so I was timidly trying to say, like, well, I think more people like Swingers than liked Under Siege 2. It's like, Swingers look like shit. <laughs> and he would try to cut me off of my knee, and I eventually started joking that we couldn't afford a line producer on Swingers. Like, we couldn't afford the person who tells you what you can't do. <laughs> so we just did whatever we wanted to do. And so sort of from the beginning, there was a, a sense of antagonism on the set between sort of me and the studio. And, and this line producer was friends with the head of production for the studio. It was like their sort of, their person to quote unquote control me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like being controlled. Was, was Matt always the first choice? Who, who was the first actor you went to for Bourne? Um, no, I went to Brad Pitt. Yeah. Uh, and Brad Pitt signed on. Um, and then, I don't know, a few months out, uh, Tony Scott convinced him to be in Spy Game. So he bailed on me. Got it. Uh, and then uh, I, I had great casting director, Joseph Middleton. And he said, what about Matt Damon? Matt had just been in uh, Ripley, uh, Talented Mr. Ripley. Sure. You know, he plays kind of a, a sociopath, gay, yeah, socio yeah. gay sociopath. Yeah. Yeah, that's my spy hero, sure. <laughs> and but I, I, I was like, oh my, I don't know about that. He's yeah. in that, that green thong. It's <laughs> like that's not my vision of Jason Bourne. But, uh, but I went back and looked at Goodwill Hunting and, and saw there was something in Matt's eyes, and I was like, you know, there's something with this guy. Yeah. Um. So I, I convinced Matt to be in the movie, and, uh, um, you know, I've sort of had. And then when the film was all done, Brad actually came to the premiere, and the premiere was was one of the worst experiences of my life. Why, what happened? Because the, the studio hated the movie. I mean, hate, everybody hated the movie. It's no one to siege to, Doug, I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, the, the screenwriter, you know, so the second screenwriter really wrote the whole movie. Tony? Tony Gilroy. Yeah. Um, in the first time and only time in the history of the Writers Guild, arbitrated about himself to not get sole credit. The Writers Guild awarded him sole credit because we rewrote the whole script together. Right. We threw away Blake's script. Blake's script was very true to the novel. And I was like, mm -hmm. you know, that's not going to work. And we, I was like, let's start over. I was like, let's work from Iran-Contra. Right. And, and, and just start over from scratch from my own personal stories. And that's what Tony and I did. Um, so it was, it was all his script. And Tony went to the Writers Guild and said, I don't want to have sole credit. I mean, people were running from the thing like a sinking ship. Uh, so I already had that experience going into the premiere. Um, and then at the, at the premiere, when the film ended, I looked over and my sister was asleep. You know, she's in my row with me. And my girlfriend, who's right next to me, turned to me and said, it's not what I expected it to be. And I was like, oh, my God, my, my career's over. Were you happy with it before the lights went up? Or did you think well, that, No, because, I mean, they had sort of convinced me that, that you, they, were, they were like, it's going to be a disaster. You screwed it up. You, they were like, this is you, not how action movies are made. You, you fucked it up. And this doesn't look like other action right. movies. And you, we told you not to make it this way. And uh, 
And then the first piece of good news I got was Brad Pitt was happened to be at that premiere and he came up to me and said, I made a mistake. I should have been in your movie. Uh, and that started me. That was like, and then obviously the film went on to be a big hit. Right. Um, and not that long after that, Brad Pitt sent me the script to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Sure. And said, do you want to go make this movie? So what's your your relationship with the franchise going forward? Obviously, Greengrass did, did a hell of a, a job, especially on two and three. I think most would agree. Um, are you like active as a producer? Do you, I mean, do you have kind of mixed feelings in terms of Paul gets a lot of credit, you get a lot of credit, but it, it feels a little muddled sometimes on who the, you know, who the, the who should get the credit? I feel like Born. I mean, there's a lot to go around. I would think, but well, it's you know, I think Born Identity, you know, is is entirely my film. Yeah. And then everything beyond that, um, Paul really deserves a huge amount of credit because uh, there's a lot of people, you know, involved in this franchise. I mean, I talked about the line producer who's a nightmare, but, you know, the, pretty much everybody who got involved were would all be cautionary tales of, you know, you go to Hollywood, you know, with a, with a movie under your arm and you go sell it to a studio yeah. of, of the kind of sharks that circle. Right. Um, and who, who really have it in for you. Um, and Paul, Paul stepped into an impossible situation where, uh, you know, um, Tony Gilroy was screaming at him that, you know, everybody's laughing at you. Everybody's laughing at you. You're making a fool of yourself, you know, and you got to sort of, this you know, is, Paul was, had, was new to the studio system. Yeah, that was also He's a like, similar kind was, of spot you were in for the, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he had no, nothing to rely on. And you got people like Tony attacking him. You got this line producer screaming at him that he's worse than me. <laughs> uh, so Paul and I actually became really close because, you know, there's there's just no one else on the planet that's been through that experience. Yeah, you're in a unique small club. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a small. It's like it's like it's a great club, you know. And you, it's a it's an amazing franchise. And, you know, and Matt, working with Matt Damon is is you know an extraordinary experience. But, you know, and, and I, you know, I always feel bad with, you know, bitching about, you know, these characters because you're like, these sound like, you know, pretty rich problems to sure, have. Sure, sure. But, but I have to tell you, they, when you're in the trenches and, you know, a seasoned screenwriter screaming at you that everybody's laughing at you, <laughs> a lot of people would have quit. It, yeah. It's a real testament to Paul that he stayed in there. You know, and eventually fired Tony, right? And and made a great movie out of two and three. Did you end up seeing, or were you involved at all in Tony's film on the uh, spinoff kind of thing? No, it's, you know, it's, uh, um, and I, I really, and I, you know, to be honest, I, I didn't want to participate at all in in the last movie. Yeah. Um, it wasn't. Uh, they went a little one too far for your sake. For your no, I, I mean, I'm all for like reinventing the genre and but sure. I was like it's I was like what's new here and and it was a little to be honest a little sad to me because you know and this is very personal but you know when I was making go I, I really had a, a feeling like I'm making my last rebellious movie this will be my last <laughs> kind of like youthful rebellious movie yeah you know because I got to grow up and when I was making Born Identity with Matt, I was like, you know, we're making, you know, I don't know, Matt, old Matt was, we're making the movie 30. It's like, you know, my age. He was like, you, uh, 
Because like we're we're not making the aging acting action hero, you know, trying to relive his past glory. Yeah. You know, Matt is actually f- physically in his prime. Yep. And we would make fun of all those other action movies out there and make fun of, of all those sort of aging action stars trying to hang on to their youth. The I'm too old for this shit genre of the. Yeah. We're like, we're, we were the, we're, we were the, you know, the antidote to that. Totally. And then suddenly I look at Jason Bourne and I'm like, oh no, we, they start we've to become <laughs> the thing we were making fun of. Yeah. And. I don't know. That's not. That's not what Born is, and that's not what you set out to do in the first. Well, place. I'm just yeah. always, uh, you know, it's very personal. Some people oh, might be like, "Great, I've become the thing I was making fun of," and I was making fun of, you know, these billion-dollar franchises, and now I have one. Totally. So, you know, you could, you could look at it the other way, but maybe when, because I, I was making Swingers, and and the, when the film came out, we're a teeny little movie, but Time Magazine did a review, and it was like, we had just one little column. But it was a rave review, and there was some huge movie like Minority Report mm. that was no, not Minority Report. Um, I don't know what was coming out opposite Swingers, but some, and it had like the whole rest of the page with a yeah. giant picture, and it was like an F, and we were given like an A. And I was looking at that page, and I was like, you know, one day, I'm going to be on the other side of the page, and I'm going to be doing the big movie that gets the F, <laughs> and it's that. That moment sort of stuck with me. And so maybe that's, I was reading some of that into like, yeah, yeah. oh no, we've become the other thing. You're listening to Happy, Sad, Confused. We'll be right back after this. I, I want to, I mean, we don't have time to go detailed into every single one, but I do want to talk a, a bit about Edge of Tomorrow. It, also in respect to, you mentioned Tom. In some ways it surprises me. I think it's great that you guys clearly get along as well as you do, but like everything I know about you and talking to actors that work with you is it's kind of like, you know. The opposite of Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's he, he seems like a very meticulous, precise actor. And you seem, and I mean this as a compliment, you see, like kind of a, you create a great chaos, and you kind of embrace kind of unpredictability and f- fluidity on a set, and, and 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 it works for you. And Tom doesn't seem like that to me. I mean, am I getting but something Tom wrong? Is, or no, what's... no. But I mean, we are. I mean, you know, we we made American Made, which comes out this fall. We yeah. we actually shared a house together, <laughs> and and it was you know it was like the odd couple because <laughs> he's super meticulous and he. Also, he eats like nothing but greens and seeds, and and we end up having to have two refrigerators for, <laughs> and because I'm like all about frozen pizzas, and you know it's you guys must this should have been a reality show. You missed an opportunity he was, here. We you know because he's Tom Cruise and we're shooting Atlanta, you know, they can't just have any housekeeper in the house, right? Uh, and <laughs> the person has to you know because they, they're worried the person's going to work for TMZ or something, <laughs> and they couldn't find somebody who could pass muster. So Tom and I had to clean the house ourselves. And the screenwriter was also living with us. And we had a chore chart. And it was a lot of bitching about whose dishes were in the sink. And <laughs> and Tom would really, you know, I would clean stuff. And he would pull it out of the dishwasher and be like, that's not clean enough. And you got to clean it again. And But I think that, you know, that that kind of, of, of camaraderie and, and that kind of such a difference in, in, in outlook on the world... I think it's something that breathes a lot of life into Tom's performances in the movies we do together. And I think he he really kind of enjoys that contrast. And because I I don't I drag him into situations, you know, that he has no business going to as as 
Tom Cruise, I'll be like, hey, we're going to my friend's apartment in Soho. And he's like, is there a secret back entrance? I'm like, no, there's no secret back entrance. It's a loft building. Just, I mean, you want to climb up the fire escape, but don't mention that to him. He might do it. I was like, you know, there's no, this is, you're in my world. And like in my world, there's no secret back doors for movie stars. So I'm very excited that you're going to continue this relationship because uh, I think if everything aligns, you're going to do the uh, Edge of Tomorrow. We are going to. We have a great idea for the sequel. So like, is it amazing? A se- is it a sequel? Is it a prequel? What is this? It's a sequel that's a prequel. <laughs> it really is. And when you when you see it, you'll be like, I get exactly what he meant by that. What are you trying to avoid? And because you, I don't, you have, you've never done a sequel, right? I, unless I'm forgetting something. No. So what are you? What are the traps of sequels that you're trying to avoid uh, without giving away too much? Like what's, what what makes this work? You think that is going to make people sit up and take notice that this is a, a, a change think, in how sequels are done? I think what people tend to do with sequels is they just make them bigger. Right. And I'm like, no, a sequel should be smaller. Like you did the first film as sort of the ad, the ad campaign for the sequel. Right. So, fall in love with these characters and now it's, now you, yeah. you don't need as much action and you don't you know like and in the case of Edge of Tomorrow people obviously love the comedy and they love the situation and it's like so we can do way more focused on Tom's character and Emily Blunt's character and there's a, a third character in the sequel that's you know you know is is gonna for sure steal the movie uh, and uh, you know it's we can focus on that um, because we have the first movie as the sort of that'll get people That's in the, the theater. Yeah, I don't exactly. need. Yep. I don't need an action sequence every two minutes. Right. And people usually think the other way about. Se- well, a lot of times you're just only story left for the sequel. Right. I mean, obviously in the the Bourne franchise, like we're sort of down to like Jason Bourne's running and people are chasing him. There's just no story left. Uh, and uh, so you you better have great action. You know, we really I, I really see this as it's a two movie franchise. There's just there's the completion of the story we set up in the first movie, yeah, and uh, and the relationship between Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, um, as you remember at the end of the first movie, she doesn't know who he is, and um, and that's going to launch us in, in an amazing new direction. Does it? Um, can you say does it pick up literally right where it left off? Is there... it does actually pick up right where we left off, but but it 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 doesn't keep going forward. Got it. Because we screw with time. Got it. Because the aliens screw with time. I can't wait. I'm so excited about it. Um, have you thought of new ways to, to murder Tom Cruise? You can't do. Uh, you can't. We do because we're uh, um, because uh, it's mostly not on the battlefield. So there's there's a whole new arena of uh, of, of of fights we're going to do using a lot of the technology, but also because it is a prequel, it's right. it's a lot of the precursor stuff, and and I'm really interested in the details of that. I mean, that's kind yeah. of the wall is sort of a payoff of my interest in getting drama out of details. Like, yep. you know, I was very interested in- The minutia. The, like the, the batteries, do they run out on these suits? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they must have batteries, you know, or he gets stuck with the thing, the menu in the wrong language, which sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done that on your TV sure. or something, you yeah, can't yeah. get it back. And, you know, just the reality of, you know, that menu stuck in the wrong language when you're in the middle of a battlefield and aliens are, are all around you and you got to get the suit working again that detail gives you drama and excitement and humor and humor. <laughs> and so I w- was really interested in that in terms of the wall of, cause that's all I have really are little details like yeah, that. Yeah. And so the sequel, I'm creating an environment where I get to 
have even more of those details. Nice. So are you, are you juggling about obviously doing press for the wall now? It sounds like your head's very much in live, die, repeat, and repeat. Is that what yeah. we're calling it? Um, Justice League Dark, is that something? Like, Is there a script done on that or is that still, still kind of in development? Right still now? in development, but we have an amazing, amazing idea. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem now is, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches. I have these all these different projects I want to do, and and yeah. there's only one of me, and it, and they really are intensive. You know, it, it's producers. You know, I feel like you know probably because they have directors that they delegate to. Uh, you know, can do multiple projects, but really as a director, you know, if you want to make something great, you got to put everything into it, and so yeah. Um, I just wish, I wish, I mean, I'm. I'm already sort of compromising sleep and everything else in my life to try to, you know, because I'm just so excited to tell these stories. But uh, it must also be exciting. I know you, you were attached to the gambit for a bit. You've never done kind of like, I mean, you've kind of like, in some ways you could call some of the characters you've dealt with superheroes, but like a full on kind of superhero film. We, you know, you talk about growing up with Superman, the movie, et cetera, uh, getting a chance to play with some of those iconic characters, whether it's, you know, Swamp Things, Atano, et cetera. That, that's intriguing. Yeah, but you could imagine that, you know, People don't come to me with, to do sort of the traditional version of, of one of these movies. No, I wouldn't so. expect it. Does it take place in, in, within the DC universe, like the like the Man of Steel and Batman films, or is it its own thing? It's its own thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, as a consumer, because, you know, you've talked about, and it doesn't surprise me, like, and I've talked about this on this podcast with others, like, I grew up with these same kind of films you talk about, but, like, I kind of lament the sameness of blockbusters that I see now. And part of that comes from, I guess, just how they're made, from the studios, from the budgets. I don't even know. You probably, I mean, you probably have better theories than me. Do you see hope in sight for blockbusters? Or do you think we're going down a dark road where they're just going to get more and more similar and lifeless? <laughs> uh, give me hope, Doug. No, because there's always filmmakers who come along and just shake Rev it, it up, up yeah. and, you know, and it's, it's hard to do. You know, the system wants to push you into convention. And of my my experience on Born Identity, you know, I'm sure I've been replicated uh, countless times on, on other sets. Sure. And, uh, you know, the system, you know, because the familiar feels safe and it's worked in the past. Why wouldn't you do it again? So you sort of see all the forces push filmmakers towards uh, the very, you know, kind of phenomenon of, of cookie cutter blockbuster that you you are lamenting um, but occasionally there's filmmakers who come along whether it's directors or producers who 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 say no to that yeah are there are there recent examples you can point to that got you in, re-inspired you that said this is a unique voice that's doing something within the framework of the quote-unquote system um yeah i think that uh deadpool is um even uh um, the uh, the new Wolverine film, Logan, yeah, you know, is you know is a very personal, small story, you know, and you figure, oh, it's the culmination of Wolverine. It's going to be, you know, bigger, bigger, the bigger, biggest yeah, exactly. and the most action. And that's an example of a sequel where they use the whole franchise to then tell a, to get the audiences in, and then tell a smaller, more meaningful story. Yeah, I know. You, yeah, I remember throughout the years there have been a couple like space-related projects that you've been developing. Yeah, yeah I'm very, I'm very to. obsessed with going into outer space. You ha so, so is there one at this point that you're you're eyeing? Do you literally want to go into? Do you want to shoot in outer space? Like, what's is this again? Just date back to no, I'm just seeing the space shuttle go up, et cetera, or was it? I'm just like. Where's the future in terms of space travel? Like, why do I have to? Why do I got to go to movies? 
to see the future and see us going to outer space. Like we were, you know, people don't even realize, you know, that, you know, we walked on the moon in 1969. Like probably the most people listening to this, this cast won't, won't know that. <laughs> and they certainly won't know that like we're the only country that sent people to the moon. Like people, it's so far ago now, so long ago. And it's like, why, why can't we go back into space and why aren't we exploring? Yeah. Like, you know, we're done exploring every nook and cranny of this planet. There's a whole universe out there. So I'm, I'm really obsessed with like, when does the future begin? Hmm. Like I had that experience a little bit driving a Tesla when it went into autonomous mode. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the future. Like it's driving itself. Yeah. When did that happen? <laughs> so I'm, 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 you know, because we're not ready to kind of do that with, with real space technology, you know, we're not really ready to send people into space. I mean, we send them into orbit, but that's nothing. Like yeah. I'm talking about like, Deep space. Deep, go, going yeah. to another planet. Yeah. Going to, you know, going to the moon of, uh, you know, going to Io, going to one of these other moons and looking for life and camping out on the ice. Like, that just seems like the ultimate adventure and, and trying to, you know, the next closest thing to actually doing it is, you know, bring the kind of realism to a journey like that that, you know, I brought to say Jason Bourne being chased across Europe or, you know, two soldiers pinned down in Iraq and the wall. So would, would you want to explore something that looks like kind of optimistically towards the future of what we're maybe not doing in reality and kind of capturing that or kind of capturing something of the grandeur of Neil Armstrong in the past, which now as you... No, no, in the future. You would got you want to go to the future and kind of show what that can be and what could but be. But I'm, I'm very interested that, that to go into the future, you got to go to museums. Right. If you want to see what a spaceship looks like, yeah, yeah, they yeah. can land on another planet. It's not in a laboratory. It's sitting in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. <laughs> right. Uh, and what about, you know, you, you've dealt in fair game and, you know, talking about Bourne. You've obviously dealt with things that, that uh, dovetail with politics and considering the environment you grew up in. Uh, does the current uh, world we live in inspire um, creative projects or does, does it make you want to kind of go in the opposite direction towards space, towards edge of tomorrow land, et cetera? You know, there's no question, you know, that that movies provide a, a form of escape from, you know, the day to day things that are going on, which are, you know, not easy for a lot of people to deal with right now. Uh, but, um, you know, in the same way that I'm interested in, in the wall in terms of. Let's forget about the politics and let's just, you know, there's soldiers fighting every day. Totally. And there's soldiers giving up their lives every week. You know, we don't we don't. It doesn't make the news anymore, right? Because you got to get through forty pages of coverage on Trump, or you know, right. or it, it never makes it to a TV broadcast um, before you get to you know who was killed this week in combat. But there's soldiers dying every week in combat, and you know, I was very interested in the wall of, of telling the story of two of these soldiers who are you know fighting for their lives and fighting for survival um, as a way of saying you know it's. It's independent of politics. It's taking place in Iraq. Right. So you, there is a version of being very political about that. But but the wall isn't political because it, it doesn't – the characters don't have the luxury of being political. They're not in a coffee shop in New York. They're in the desert in Iraq in an oil field pinned down by a vicious Iraqi sniper. So, uh, you know, who has – they just don't have the luxury in that situation to talk about the view from 30,000 feet up. They're, they're yeah. at ground level. And so – the wall, in a way, is a sense of escapism of like, let's look at some of the positive things, you know, and, and I feel like ever since making the wall, I just I don't look at a, a soldier the same way. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you sometimes see them in the 
you know, guarding some of the things in New York City and, you know, you see International Guard and Fleet Week or, you know, we, we showed the film a few weeks ago to, to 400 soldiers and that was, you know, incredibly meaningful to me. And I, I spent time after that, you know, talking to as many of them as I could. And it's, yeah. uh, so I, I do hope that uh, people come out of the wall and they maybe stop thinking about Washington for a moment and think about that people, people are actually out there fighting. Yeah. Well, congratulations on this one. I mean, it's 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 a another stellar piece of work. You get some great performances, as you said, from Aaron and and John, who knew John. I mean, he was John Cena. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and I always look forward to seeing what you do because you always bring. Uh, love how unpredictable and cool your career has been, and I always look forward to what's coming next. And and I'm thrilled that you're uh, you're going to go back to Edge of Tomorrow because everything you've said about that sounds bananas and insane in the best possible way. Uh, it's good to see you as always, Doug. Thanks. Cool. We did it. Nice to see you, sir. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. (laughs) This episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. This week on RVER, sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Hey, Chief, we got a damaged RV on its way to the OR. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of RV surgery. (laughs) Wait, are you promoting me? Congrats, Martinez. Doctor, that RV's flatlining. Well, that sounds like a job for the new head of nursing. So you're just promoting everyone now? Yeah, kind of looks that way, doesn't it? When your RV really needs saving, Progressive has you covered. See if you could save with a leader in RV insurance. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Covered subject to policy terms.